Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased its joy. They rejoice before thee as with the joy at the harvest, as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, thou hast broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government of peace and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, good morning everybody. Perhaps you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to read part of this chapter and then we're going to take a short leap from the end of the chapter into the middle of John chapter 8. So John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive, for as yet there was no spirit because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why did you not arrest him? The police answered, Never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any of the authorities or the the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. Now we take our leap to John chapter 8 verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for daring to invite me back to come and spend uh, a morning with you. Uh, I always enjoy coming here. Uh, I enjoy the valley and uh, seeing the way it develops over the years. And I enjoy the fellowship and the worship that uh, you experience uh, in this church. So thank you, and uh, please invite me again sometime uh, when you've recovered from this particular visit. And when we come to worship, um, to worship God, uh, I imagine, um, I'm sure, that all of us have some kind of image in our mind of the one whom we are seeking to worship. We have some kind of concept or mental image of the God who is worthy of our praises. And more than that, I suspect that uh, some of us have in mind something like that great painting by William Blake, um, where uh, he portrays God as... A very fit, muscular, good-looking, bearded, but old man, and who is measuring the earth with a sort of uh, compass. And uh, this painting is called The Ancient of Days. And I guess that's the kind of image that some of us at least have. And this points us to a little bit of a problem that we have as um, human beings and as believing human beings. Because how can you portray or image that which is beyond our imagination? How can you paint a mental picture of God when you know that every possible picture that you could ever come up with is going to fall short? Of the glory. And not only that, he's not only going to fall short, but he's going to run the risk and the danger of making God too small. Of making God a bigger version of ourselves. And that borders on becoming what in the Bible is called 
idolatry. You see the problem? How do we picture and imagine one who surpasses any possible image that we could possibly have? And so I find it helpful not to think of God as a sort of bigger version of ourselves, but when I think of God, and when I come to worship God in particular, to think rather of light shining. And when we come together to worship, we are, as it were, turning our imaginations, our bodies, our lives, our very selves, towards the light, towards the radiance of God's glory. And we are allowing ourselves to be dazzled by the one who is beyond our imagination. The glory of God shines forth. And we stand in the presence of that glory and we give back to God something of the glory which truly belongs to God. And this image of light is deeply rooted in the Bible also deeply rooted in our service, as you may have imagined or noticed so far. It's not only rooted in the Bible, it's rooted in many different religious traditions when they come to try and image God. The idea of light, light that shines, light that bedazzles, light that illuminates. And of course, when you think about light, we need light and we can understand something of what light does for us when we understand that light shines in the darkness and that the darkness is the opposite to light. And we only need the light because there is darkness and there is only darkness where the light is absent. And this idea, not only of light, but also of the darkness that covers the earth, The gloom, which is a pall over the human race, is also deeply rooted in the Bible. And there are different ways in which that darkness can be made intelligible to us. There is, for instance, the darkness of ignorance. And so when we're ignorant of something, we're in the dark about things that we could know or should know. And a fundamental aspect of What the Bible has to teach us is that the human race lives in darkness. That we are ignorant of the things that matter most. Now, of course, we do know many things. And actually, the amount of human knowledge is increasing at an exponential level. Every year, we probably multiply the things that we know. But do we really know the things that are most important? The things that really matter? Is there a difference between knowledge, of which we have an abundance, and wisdom, of which we have a huge lack? And uh, the, the darkness which covers the earth is... A darkness concerning those fundamental questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? Why do we live? Where are we going? And most of all, is there a God to whom all of us are accountable? And in these areas, I think you'll agree with me, there is huge ignorance and therefore darkness. And it's all around us. People living their lives in the darkness. And that's the darkness of ignorance. 
But there's also, more deeply and more importantly, it seems to me, the darkness of sin. Because the fact is, we prefer the darkness to the light. We prefer to live in the darkness. Jesus himself said something like this. Uh, that they, uh, he knew the evil that is in human beings and how we prefer the darkness because otherwise our deeds would be exposed. The truth about ourselves would be made visible and the truth about ourselves is actually hard to bear. It's something we run away from. Any of us confronted with the truth about ourselves would step back would be fearful because we're afraid of facing even the truth about what is in our own hearts, about what is in our own minds. And so here is the darkness. And the darkness is powerful. And the darkness is pervasive. The darkness covers the earth. But it's not as if in our darkness we are completely without light. There is, for instance, the light that shines in creation. Because again, the Bible teaches us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And therefore, for those who have eyes to see, for those who are willing to step out of the darkness or step beyond the darkness, when we look at the world around about us and its glory and its majesty, when we stare at the heavens... There is some kind of light that shines, that reminds us that there are, there's more, there's more in heaven and earth than in our darkness we dream of. There is a greatness and a reality which engulfs us, which is beyond us, which makes us feel small, which tells us how little we know, which amazes us. And not only the uh, the light that shines in creation, there is the light that shines in human conscience. Because however much we love darkness, all of us have inklings that there are things that we do we should not do. And there are things we fail to do that we should do. And we are troubled. Nearly every human being on the face of the earth know something of the light of conscience. And those who don't have that, we call sociopaths or psychopaths because seemingly they're unable to feel what the great majority of us feel when we do that which is wrong. We feel uneasy within. We feel as if we are not living up to what we should be. And in these ways, the light shines even in the darkness in a way that a great German philosopher called Immanuel Kant once described. I know you all talk about Kant when you go home and you meditate upon his works and you you think about it all. He talks about the starry heavens above us and the moral law within us that provoke us even in the midst of our darkness. And that's, of course, where we come to this particular verse that we're looking at today because the light shines in another way too there's another way in which the light penetrates the darkness it is in the life and the teaching of a man called Jesus who was audacious enough to describe himself as the light of the world I am 
the light of the world. And if you didn't believe that in some way, I don't think you'd be here today. Or if you didn't believe that this may be true, you wouldn't be here today. If you had turned your face against this, then you would have no reason for being here. It's only because we believe that the light shines most clearly in Jesus Christ that we dare to come here today and that we trouble ourselves to worship the living God in the name of Jesus. It's a great verse, this. It's a great text. And it fascinates me, the way in which it occurs here uh, in this uh, in this passage, in John chapter 7, John chapter 8. And uh, to understand it properly, we, we have to understand what's going on here. There's a debate taking place. Jesus is at one of the great feasts in Jerusalem. And uh, he uh, he he uh, takes his opportunity um, to uh, to say, uh, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. You see, this is a festival where there was a ritual pouring of the water, and uh, in connection with that, Jesus says, if you're really thirsty, then uh, uh, this may help you, this water that you're pouring out. But I am the one who can slake your real thirst. I am the one who can give you the water of the Holy Spirit. And come to me and drink. And he makes another great claim about himself. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, all of this gets contested. People don't naturally or easily accept what Jesus says. What he says is extraordinary from their point of view. Almost blasphemous. And so they have this debate about him. And some people are impressed. And they say, surely this man is the prophet. This is verse 40. Because they were expecting a prophet who would arise. And who would prepare the way. And others said, no, he's, he's not just the prophet, he's more important than that. Surely he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one. And in verse 41 we read, we read this, and others contest it, and they say, he can't be the Messiah. Uh, because the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Verse 41. Doesn't the scripture say... They claim that the Messiah is a descendant of David and therefore comes from David's city, i.e. Bethlehem. Well, I think we know something they didn't know. And there's this division in the crowd, it says in verse 41. Some wanted to arrest him as a blasphemer, but nobody dared because there was something special about Jesus. And so the debate goes on and there are those who flatly deny that Jesus can possibly be either the prophet or the Messiah. And uh, they have various reasons. They, uh, they say, well, he can't be the Messiah because, well, um, the high priests and the Pharisees, they haven't believed in him. In other words, the elite haven't believed in him, so he can't be the Messiah. Now, in my experience, elites are usually wrong about most things most of the time. So that's not a very good argument. And then the other argument is he can't be the Messiah because he does, he comes from Galilee. He doesn't come from the right place. He's not got the right credentials. He's a northerner. <laughs> he can't be the Messiah. And what you need to understand, sisters and brothers, about this is that in those days there was what you might call a north-south divide. Have you heard of the north-south divide? 
great fun. North-South divide. Now, half of my working life I've spent in the South and half of it I've spent in the North. And the fact that when I retired I decided to come back North tells you a great deal about how I view the world. I am what you might call a professional Northerner, born and bred in Manchester and therefore a Mancunian and a Lancastrian. I'm proud of it also. And uh, we know in our country we have a, or we're told we have a north-south divide. Personally, I don't think it's as big as people say. But it used to be bigger. Now, we know there is a certain north-south divide economically. I guess if you try and buy a house in the Rossendale Valley, it might be a little bit cheaper than in Chelsea or somewhere else in any place in London where you spend vast amounts of money and most of us can't afford to live there. In fact, I don't know how anybody who lives there can afford to live there. So there are things, economic divides. We're told that London is uh, one of the richest cities in the world and it's prospering. uh, And we know that London and the rest of the United Kingdom uh, don't have all that much in common, really. So economically, yes, even if Manchester is now the northern powerhouse, there is an economic divide. But uh, I like those old north-south stories, you know, that uh, people used to tell. Perhaps they still do in the Rossendale Valley. Uh, In the south, they talk about people who come from north of Watford. Anywhere north of Watford is the north, and by implication, inferior to the south. And that there is the story that in the north, they all wear flat caps. Actually, flat caps are very fashionable these days, and there's a big um, market in all kinds of flat caps. Or the idea that in the north, um, everybody has an outside toilet. Now, I think personally an outside toilet is a pretty good idea, as long as you've got an inside toilet, and therefore you have the choice. Or the idea that uh, in the north, they think more of their whippets than they do of their women. So we have all these uh, other playful images that people uh, have in their minds. And the North-South divide has become a little bit of fun uh, now, uh, at least in my perspective in this country. Well, in Israel, at the time of Jesus, there was a North-South divide. You see, if you lived in Jerusalem, where this takes place, you lived near the temple. And automatically, living near the temple put up your real estate prices quite considerably. Because the temple was where God was believed to have his dwelling place amongst the people of Israel. And therefore, anywhere in Jerusalem was going to be more prestigious than anywhere else in, for instance, Judea. And uh, more than that, in Galilee, which is the north, anybody ever been to Galilee? Quite a few of you, I think. Wonderful place. Uh, in the, in Galilee, to get there, you had to go through the land of the Samaritans, and that's where the heretics lived. And therefore, it, it wasn't a very good journey to get to Galilee. And when you got to Galilee, you found that it was a very mixed place. Instead of it being simply Jewish, it was Jews and Gentiles living together. Near Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, there was a big city being built called Sepphoris, which was a Gentile city. People speculate that Jesus, as a jobbing carpenter, may himself have worked in Sepphoris. And beyond that, on the edge of Galilee, 
you were really getting into serious Gentile country. And there was a trade route, the way of the sea as it was called. And all sorts of strange people passed along the way of the sea with all kinds of strange beliefs. And therefore, this was for a self-respecting, ethnically proud Jewish believer, a dangerous place to go to. And they say, the prophet can't possibly come from such a mixed, compromised place. The prophet can't possibly speak with a northern accent. That would be like saying Jesus came from Huddersfield. So he can't be. He's not from the right place with the right credentials. Here's the debate. Actually, they've not read their Old Testaments properly. They say, search and see, and you'll find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Well, they must have missed out Isaiah chapter 9 along the way. Because there it says, yes, gloom and darkness covers the land. And Naphtali and Zebulun, tribes in the north of Israel, they have been oppressed in times past. But now the time has come when the people who lived in darkness have seen a great light on the land The shadow of death, the light has dawned. I will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea. And into that context, Jesus stands up and he says what he says. Now notice this again, this is interesting. Well, at least I find it interesting and I'm preaching, so tough. (laughs) John chapter 7. Look and you will see that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Now if your Bible is open you'll notice that then there is a passage which we call the story of the woman taken in adultery. And that goes from chapter 8 verse 1 to verse 11. But it may be that in your Bible it's in brackets. Or it may be that it's at the bottom of the page, in a kind of footnote. Or it may be that it's at the end, depending on which version of the Bible that you're using. And that's a way of saying that that passage, however wonderful it may be, is in the wrong place. It should not be there. It has somehow been inserted, as it were, in a place where it doesn't truly belong. And it interrupts the flow, it interrupts the narrative. And therefore, after chapter 7, verse 52 Search and you will see that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Immediately, it should read chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. In other words, it's more than a prophet. More than the Messiah comes from Galilee. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness in ignorance and in sin but you will have the light of life see that's the context for Jesus saying what he says making this extraordinary claim now believe me if anybody else had made this claim you and I would imagine that they should be put in a psychiatric ward in fact in psychiatric wards I have met people who have believed that they have been the messiah And have dressed appropriately. (laughs) We would think anybody 
who said this was less than sane, that they were deluded, that they had imaginations of grandeur. But Jesus says it, and we believe it, because we believe that he is the only person who has ever lived upon the face of the earth who has anything like a credible right to say, I am the light of the world. And this fundamental belief is the backbone of the Christian faith. You see, we are the body of Christ, but a body cannot survive without a backbone. And this is the backbone of everything we believe. And the Gospel of John makes it clearer than any other Gospel Beginning with those words, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, we beheld his glory. And ending at the end of chapter 20 with the idea, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. This is the backbone of the Christian faith. Take this away. And there is no Christian faith. Take it away and there is no body. Because the body cannot survive without this fundamental conviction and indeed experience that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And what does light do? Chases away the darkness. It brings enlightenment. In other words, the ignorance about why we're here Why we live, how we should live, where we're going, what it's all about. That ignorance is dispelled because Jesus shows us the way. And the darkness of sin, the aversion to knowing and loving God is overcome because Jesus brings us into a knowledge and love of a gracious God who brings us life. And life that lasts forever. And this Jesus, he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, again, we need to understand. You see, you can't understand the New Testament unless you read it against the background of the Old Testament. There are some Christians who would like to get rid of the Old Testament, I'm told because they find some parts of it problematic and difficult. Well, indeed, there are some parts of it which are problematic and difficult. But if you get rid of the Old Testament, you get rid of the New Testament as well, because you can't understand the New Testament without understanding it against the background of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, what does it say? It tells us that when the people of Israel were being brought out of Egypt and led into the Promised Land, in that long period of wandering... They were led during the day by a cloud and during the night by a pillar of fire. And that's the image that Jesus picks up. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the pillar of fire. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. I will lead you into the promised land of the knowledge and love of God. If you go where I lead you, 
If you see your whole life as being a journey in which I lead you and I'm the lighthouse and you follow the lighthouse, then the lighthouse will bring you safely home into the land promised by God, into the life promised by God, into the inheritance promised by God that comes to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness anymore. But light will dawn, and life will come. And joy will be my gift to you. Here is the light of the world, sisters and brothers. Through him, in him, by him, we worship the Father. We turn ourselves towards the light in order that we might be filled with light, in order that the darkness may be chased away, and that we may know God's gift through Jesus Christ, his Son.